Welcome back to Rings and Realms. Today we're going to talk about episode six of The Rings of Power, which was an unusually intense episode in a couple different ways. First, it was intense because it was the first time we really got violence and blood on screen. And it was really interesting how that played out. And we'll talk about that some. But also, it was, in, it was intense in terms of its focus. We concentrated on one storyline. Instead of bouncing around, doing multiple plot lines and moving them forward, we just got one story all the way through. And what's more, we had two of our groups of characters, two of our different storylines, which converged into one episode, making it really packed and really rich. As always, there's a lot to talk about, so let's jump straight in. I think the central theme of episode six was the concept of home. And this is a really complicated concept that gets worked out in a couple different ways, very different ways uh, in this episode. Let me start with one smaller and simple one, and we'll work up to the really big heavy ones. Um, the simple one is Isildur, actually. We come near the beginning of this episode. We start with Isildur talking to Galadriel on the ship. And he says some interesting things which pick up on what we've seen from Isildur's character before. He talks specifically about the real Numenor. And for the first time, he mentions why he volunteered, why he wanted to come on this expedition at all. And it's because he wants to get out of Numenor. We saw his desire to leave. He wanted out of the Sea Guard. He didn't, which means not just he wanted free of that responsibility, he didn't want to be connected with this official Numenorean institution, right? Um, there was talk both Aarian, his sister, and Elendil, his father, assumed that his entire goal of getting kicked out of the Sea Guard was to go west, where, as far as we understand, his brother Anarian already is. Now, the west of Numenor is what he calls the real Numenor. Um, and we, we, we know this, Velando already mentioned that back in episode five, um, and we, or maybe it was four. Anyway. A little while ago, Velandil mentioned it, um, and he repeats that. Isildur repeats that in his conversation with Galadriel, um, that, he, that the Numenor that he knows, the Numenor he has grown up in, is not the real Numenor. This is something which is, um, which is already lost, which is already in decline, and he rejects it and wants to distance himself from it, right? Remember Velandil telling him, when they were confronting each other in the punching alley, right, um, that uh, he, Velandil hopes that Isildur will find something that he's willing to sacrifice anything for, right? Um, he does not have, Isildur does not have a home. He does not have an identity other than, other than Numenor, which he wants to distance himself from, right? And maybe on this trip to Middle-earth, He's going to help to find that. And there was a fascinating moment. It's my favorite Easter egg from the entirety of episode six when uh, he's talking with his friends, Antamo and Velandil, Isildur is. Um, and they're looking around and Isildur says, I like the mountains, right? Because of course, those mountains are the mountains that he is going to build his stronghold on. We know that Isildur is going to build Minas Ithil is going to build the Tower of the Moon, and he's going to build that tower on those mountains that he's identifying with. That's going to be his home, eventually, right? Um, but what exactly his road is going to be, from the Isildur that we're seeing now 
to the Isildur that we know is going to eventually cut the ring off Sauron's hand at the end of season five. He has a long road to go. Where is his home? Um, what, where does he really belong? What exactly is he going to sacrifice for? Um, so that was one interesting touch, I thought, there. But the big place, the primary place where the theme of home is explicitly brought up is by Adar in talking about the orcs. Adar has this vision, right, this vision for his children. He calls the orcs his children, but it's clear there's, there's a lot of complexity here, right? On the one hand, you may remember from episode five, the scene when he's staring up at the sun and he's exposing uh, you know, his orc lieutenant's arm to the sun and it's blistering and smoking during the whole conversation, right, which was really creepy. And he wishes that the orcs could appreciate the sun the way that he can. And he also says that the sun is going to go away. And when it does go away, um, that he's going to lose the part of himself that could appreciate the sun, right, that could relate to the sun. Um, He talks very touchingly, and therefore, in this way, sacrificially, right? Um, Like, he's going to give up something in order to enable his children, the orcs, to have their home where they can be at peace. And he's going to do this by hiding the sun, right? By removing the sun from the picture and creating Mordor, which just means the black land. Or, as as Tolkien said in the famous ring poem, where the shadows lie, right? He wants to create the Mordor where shadows lie so that his orcs can live at peace there and have their home. Now, there's a, there's a little gap here, there's a little tension here um, between the way that Adar talks about the orcs and what we see from the orcs themselves. That is, he doesn't talk about them like they're monsters. He talks about them as if they are his children, right? But then you look at the orcs and how the orcs act, and they're pretty much monsters, right? Um, we'll come back to... Adar and his sort of delusional relationship with his children. But this is the place where this concept, this theme of home, gets really grounded in this episode. Adar has his vision for a home for his children. And that, of course, in turn, raises our atten- draws our attention, raises our awareness of some of the other home elements that are also happening in this episode. In particular, I want to talk about the Southlands and the people of the Southlands, right? Think of the way that they travel. Think of the shift from the very beginning of the episode when they're huddling in the tower, right? At least that's where we left them. We assume they're huddling in the tower. We saw them there in episode four and five, right? They're up there. They're starving. This is not their place. This was the center of the power for the elves in the region, right? But more, there's like three layers to that tower, right? It was originally built by the old humans, by their an- the ancestors of these humans, when these ancestors were in affiliation with Morgoth, right? So this is an evil fortress, as we can tell by the, uh, by the carvings that are still there on the wall, right? This was an evil fortress of evil people in alliance with Morgoth. Now it's been taken over by the elves, right? And the elves have covered it over with ivy, right? Um, and it's, uh, they're trying to, you know, make... Uh, make this land into a better place and whatever, right? But when, so when the, when the humans were huddling there, starving, right? Um, you know, we saw their difficulties with food, which was really emphasized in episode four. Um, they, they didn't have a place. They were refugees without a home, right? They were, they were alienated in this place, which had ties to both the elves and to the, their old blood ancestors who worshipped and followed Morgoth. And of course, those were the two poles that they were divided between. You may remember both the division 
in the crowd, right, when Bronwyn says, let's fight, and then Waldreg stands up and says, no, let's go and swear fealty to them, right? The two of them are co- sort of touching both of those poles, right? Bronwyn to let's ally ourselves with the elves, like, you know, my good friend Arondi here. And Waldreg says, no, 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 let's do like our ancestors and survive by siding with those who are strong, namely the orcs and the invaders, right? So again, both of those two elements of the tower setting, they were both touching base with, but they're not at home with either one of them. They're not those people, nor are they the elves, right? So in episode six, what we get, it starts with shifting them from the tower to the village. And I thought this was a wonderful piece of misdirection, Um, very effective. It totally looked like the beginning of episode six was going to be a Helm's Deep-esque defense of that tower, right? That seemed like what we were all set up for. And I was ready to see villagers clumsily fighting with weapons over the battlements and the orcs trying to get in through the gate and everything else, right? And instead, we don't get that. We get them invited in and then entrapped there, right? As this tower of evil collapses down upon them instead. Did you notice, by the way, the way that the tower with the fire at the top uh, collapsing down looked exactly like the collapse of Barad-dûr at the end of the Return of the King film, right, when the ring was destroyed. Um, there were some interesting parallels there. But they leave the tower and they cease to be refugees, and instead they return to their village. They return back home, right? And now they're going to defend not the Elf Tower, nor, which is the same place, the, uh, the, the, the tower of their ancestors, right? Instead, they're going to go back to their home, their village, right? Where they've actually grown up and where they have connections. They're gonna defend their village and in this way they're gonna define themselves and their home. They're gonna fight for what is really their home. Not for either one of these other two ideals, right? These other two abstractions of their ancient past or of their, you know, their, their, their elvish allies who apart from Arondir aren't really there anymore, right? They're gonna return to their village and they're gonna defend that. Um, and we get this interesting resonance in a couple ways, I think, with what Adar said to Waldrig when Waldrig comes to swear fealty to him. Only blood can bind, he says. And I think that's true within this show in multiple senses. In a horrible sense, Waldrig can only be bound to Adar, um, can only be bound by this. His oath of fealty can only be bound by shedding the blood of an innocent, right? In this case, uh, poor Rowan, who, though he was a bit of a git, probably didn't deserve to be sacrificed. Now, it didn't happen on screen. We don't know for a fact that Rowan is dead, but the implication, certainly, was that Waldrig was supposed to stab him and kill him in order to, to, uh, to affirm his oath to, to Adar, right? But I think it's clearly also true that blood can bind in the sense of them, of, of the sacrifice, not of somebody else, right, but of yourself, as well, the blood that the villagers shed in defending their village um, really serves as uh, a way to bind them to their home, to define this as their home. They are staking their claim. This is our land. We want to form our own story here and be our own people, which, of course, at the end of the episode, ends up in bringing them the long-lost king that they've been hoping for. And it looks briefly right, as if this whole establishment of a new home situation uh, is going to have a happy ending, right, is going to really uh, be triumphant there. But I'm skipping a bit. 
Um, and the bit that I'm skipping is the one of the most gut-wrenching moments in the entire episode. When the first wave of attackers in the night on the village turn out to be other people from their village and from nearby villages um, who were in the armor of orcs, right? Um, now, there are a couple different stories that we can draw out of this, right? First, on the one hand, um, we could have gotten this story from the point of view of those invaders, right? That is, their story is a pretty awful story. Um, I mean, awful for them. This is a bad look, right? Those people who just left their friends and neighbors behind in the tower and went out of fear to Adar uh, to swear a field to try to save their own lives, right? What are they told? Apparently, they're told that only blood can bind, right? In order for their allegiance, their new allegiance to be taken seriously, they have to hat up and go to the village and kill their own neighbors and friends in the name, you know, on the side of the orcs, side by side with the orcs, right? Um, and that's a terrible choice for them to have to make. That's like Waldrig's choice with Rowan uh, in, 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 in big scale, right? We don't get their story, though. We don't see them being put in that position. We don't see their trauma, right, as they're making that choice. But we know by the fact that they were there, and presumably many of them did in fact successfully kill their former friends and neighbors there before they were themselves killed in the battle. Um, that's a pretty terrible story, right? But that's not really the story that the show emphasizes. I could also do this story, um, well, I could do it very English professory, right? I could say, I could do a symbolic reading of this, and I could say something like, ah, so the fact that the, the members of this village were divided and they were there on either side, right? So some of the members of the village were fighting to defend the village and this new heritage, this new idea of home, while the other half of the villagers were in the army, were in, in the armor of orcs, right? And were fighting against them. So this shows how symbolically these people were fighting against themselves, right? As they're, they're divided, half stayed and half went. So, you know, they're, they're partially on the side of the orcs because of their traditions uh, going back to their loyalty to Morgoth, but they're partially not and in sympathy with the elves and wanting their own independence. And so they were struggling with themselves, but the ones who uh, choose to be good, right? The, one who, 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 the ones who embrace the elves, they're the ones that, that win out, right? And they overcome the evil inclinations of their other selves. That would be a symbolic reading. That would work, like it fits the facts, right? But it would be, as sometimes some English professory things tend to be, really tone deaf, right? That is also not the story that is told in this episode. The story that's told in this episode is one of tragedy and loss, right? Their horror as they discover, not, they discover like a, a number of things all at once, right? They discover it was our neighbors that were attacking us, right? There is presumably a sense of betrayal there, right? But that's not, the, they didn't react in outrage, right? There is um, also the horror of, our neighbors are all, these are our, all of our neighbors lying dead, right? And there's lamentation over the dead friends and neighbors that are revealed to be lying there. But most of all, it seemed to me, there was the horror of the fact that, of the knowledge that they themselves had killed them, right? Um, and again, we come back to 
only blood can bind, right? Um, they, their own sort of transform. It's a horrible transformation. It's a, it's a, it's a terrible reveal, right? Um, there in that moment, as they realize what they've done, what situation, right, has been created here, what it's going to mean, what it was. Yeah, there, there, there are so many ways in which this was such a powerful um, moment. And again, loss and tragedy were really the two things. They are losing part of themselves. Yeah, you can say like, oh, they won a victory over their evil inclinations. It's like a little allegory, right? Um, And that might make us feel better, but that's not at all how it worked, right? Um, They themselves, the, the, the line between them and their neighbors that were lying dead, who did betray them, who came and attacked the village. That was very, very bad for them to do. But in the end, they find that they have killed their own neighbors as well. And therefore, this home that they have established for themselves, this victory they have won, is very costly. And you can see how immediately after that, when the orc army proper comes in and they start all taking arrows and just getting mown down, right? you can see um, how costly this is, right? This little brief illusion of triumph immediately um, gets lost, right, in the midst of all of the, the horror there. And in the end, we get to destruction. That whole, that same thing, brief triumph followed by destruction, is played out again in the eruption of Orodruin, right? We won the battle. We have our new allies, the Numenorians. Oh, look, and the long-lost king has returned that we've been waiting for for a thousand years. How amazing, how wonderful. Boom, right? And now everything is destroyed. We have our new king, and there goes the neighborhood. Now, the last thing I want to emphasize about uh, home is the scene between Bronwyn and Arondir before the battle. And this is important for a couple different reasons. Um, first, we see this, this is, a, this, is, this is a family moment, right? This is, a, this is a moment of commitment that Arondir and Bronwyn are making with each other. They kiss for the first time, right? We, we, we get the kiss, which was quite nice. Um, but the kiss itself was a mere formality, right? That was not the important thing that happened in that, in that episode. The important thing were the, the, the promise, the promises that they made, the promise that Arondir made. And this is a really, really big deal, right? I'll come back to how big a deal that was. But first, the nature of the promise, right? He promises that they will settle down and live together. They will go somewhere and they will, you know, the two of them and Theo, right? You know, the family together and they will make a garden together. Now, for readers of The Lord of the Rings, um, you should be remembering a conversation that happened kind of like that uh, when Faramir and Eowyn talk about going, living together and going to make a garden, right? Um, Faramir is going to build a garden with Eowyn in Ithilien, right? Where, remember, which is right on the outskirts of Mordor, um, but it's also in a place, in a land which had been a land with evil traditions, right? A land that had been controlled by evil for a long, long time, but we're going to go there and we're going to transform it and we're going to make a garden. And that idea of transformation, of darkness into light and of horror into beauty is very much what Arondir and Bronwyn are looking forward to and thinking about in that particular moment. But as I said, this is a huge deal for Arondir. Arondir has 
been from the beginning, we know he's interested in Bronwyn. Everybody kind of knows he's interested in Bronwyn, right? Um, and they have a connection with each other. I think it's even possible, in fact, I would call it quite likely, that Arondir is Theo's dad, um, but uh, we haven't gotten that confirmed yet. Though I wondered if I could see a little bit of something. Uh, I'm, I'm still waiting, of course, every episode to see Theo's ears. His haircut is very conspicuous. I thought I saw a little, I'm not sure. But anyway, I think it likely, not certain, but likely that Arondir is Theo's father. But in any case, um, he has been uncertain what he should do, what he can do, what it's best and appropriate to do. Um, the issue of one of the Eldar, one of the elves, settling down with a human spouse, is a, it's, it's, it's complicated. It's traumatic. It often ends in death, um, as, uh, as he was talking about with his, uh, with his guard companion who was killed in episode three, way back in episode one. We know that this is a big deal. What's more, if we think about what Tolkien tells us about elves and their lives and customs... Um, Elves mate for life, like when they, when they settle down with somebody, it is permanent. Also, it's not something that they ever do while things are in flux, while they're at war and there's uncertainty, right? They only do that at a time when they can settle down, like that time that Arondir is looking forward to. Settling down with Arondir and uh, settling down with Bronwyn and building a garden, right? He has been hesitant. We see him coming in kind of to say goodbye there, Right um, in episode, I think it was episode two. Right um, uh, after they're disbanded and such. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uncertain whether he's going to say goodbye or whether he's abandoning his company. He's 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 in limbo in that moment. Right, Arondir has made his decision. What he told Bronwyn at the end, and you know, in that episode, in that moment, is something which, from the perspective of Tolkien's elves would be a lifetime commitment. Like, Arondir is now, as of now, as of episode six, is never going to marry anybody ever again. Like Bronwyn, he is, that was essentially like a wedding ceremony. It has the force of a wedding ceremony for Arondir. Um, it was a really, really big deal what he decided. And as I say, the kiss kind of solemnized it. So Arondir is making his place here, right? He and Bronwyn, um, their relationship, that is his home now. Um, and it will be really interesting to see how, what kind of tensions emerge from that. What kind of, what is, what are Arondir and Bronwyn's story going to be? As I've said from the beginning, I expected before the show started to see, like, the slow falling in love process between Bronwyn and Arondir. And I was surprised at the very beginning that we had them established in their attraction for each other. We weren't doing the whole romance thing from a distance, right, from the beginning of this show. Instead, this show seems really interested in playing out the consequences. What's going to happen now? How can they be together and to what extent, right? And that is what I think we're going to see here. What is this going to mean for Arondir? Where is his home? How is that going to draw him into tension with the other elves? Um, lots of interesting things to see from that. But this whole issue of home and where you belong and finding or making a place where you belong was, I think, really the central thematic focus of episode six.
The central instance of the healing theme in this episode was, of course, Bronwyn's gruesome wound. Right? Bronwyn lost a lot of blood. It's interesting, as, you know, a lot of people were responding to the amount of blood in this episode, but there was actually very little blood in the battles themselves. Like, we see people getting run through with swords with almost no blood visible on, this, on the screen at all, right? The blood came not in the battle, but on the table, right? When she was bleeding and her wound was being treated, it was less battlefield blood and more emergency room blood that we were seeing in this episode, right? It was really all about the healing and the need for healing. And by the way, of course, I could not help um, do a slightly English professory thing and think about that scene when we see her blood dripping down through the table onto the floor. Remember, I was talking in the home section about how blood can bind them and the blood that they were shedding to defend their home really binds them to that land and makes that really matter, right? And we were seeing Bronwyn's blood literally seeping down to the ground, right, in that moment. But anyway, apart from that, we have um, the, 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 the real visceral power of Bronwyn's wound, right? Um, Arondir's hands covered with Bronwyn's blood. Theo, uh, you know, pushing a, 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 a hot coal into his mother's flesh to cauterize her wounds. It was very visceral, their desperate attempts to heal her and to save her life, right? Um, because that was clearly at stake throughout this. There was this sense of loss and, uh, and this fear of loss, right, throughout that entire scene. And yet also... In the end, hope, right? Uh, hope through her survival. She did find healing, right? She was okay in the end. But this brush with death, um, with all of this blood that was lost, was really important. For one thing, I actually found that scene transformative. I'd been talking in Other Minds and Hands, Maggie and I's other show, um, I'd been talking about how I had not really felt a strong connection with Bronwyn's character to this point. Um, uh, after that scene, I definitely felt a stronger connection to Bronwyn's character. Um, but the last thing I want to point out about Bronwyn's wound and healing are the seeds. Uh, did you notice, of course, that he put the Alpharin seeds, the seeds that she gave him in episode one, um, in their first exchange at the well? Uh, she gave him the little, uh, the bunch of seeds. Those are flower seeds, right? Uh, a flower that meant a lot to him, right? He hadn't seen Alpharin seeds for a long time, and he was delighted uh, to find them, right? And he considers the flowers very beautiful. He then goes and plants some in her wound. Now we know that she uses them as um, healing. She uses them as medicine, right? That's why she had some. That's why she was able to get some from another healer, to trade for them uh, from another healer, because they use these seeds uh, as, as a salve, she says, right? Um, and so we see him taking the seeds, not using them to grow flowers, which is what Arandir's relationship with the seeds are. We see him using the seeds in her way, right, as a way to treat her wound. Um, but it's also kind of like he's planting these things of beauty in her body, right, as he's trying to seal uh, the wound and prevent her from dying. Um, and so the way that those two things, like the elvish healing through beauty and the human healing uh, through herbs and salves and things like that kind of came together in that moment, I thought were, uh, was, was really interesting. In its way, it seemed to me to kind of cement what we saw from Bronwyn and Arondir before, this kind of uh, uh, bond between the two of them, right? This, uh, this, this link, this, 
sort of more or less marriage between the two of them that we got in that sort of ceremonial moment by the tree prior to the battle. And I thought that those planting of the seeds, um, uh, both the planting of the seeds in the ground and the use of the seeds uh, in her wound work together in a really interesting way to kind of combine uh, their two different perspectives. Now, there are two other moments of healing that I want to mention in this episode. One is one that doesn't happen, and that is Theo, right? Um, the conversation that Arondir and Theo have at the end when they think they have recovered the hilt from Adar, right? Of course, it's the, uh, it's the, it's the duplicate, right? It's the, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the, the trick. But anyway, they think it's the hilt, right? And Aramdir gives it to Theo um, to enable him to make the choice, right? Clearly, the hilt needs to be destroyed. He can't destroy it, right? He tried to physically destroy it, and he can't. It has to be gotten rid of somehow. So his idea, we give it back to the Numenor, we give it to the Numenorians, they take it back to Numenor, throw it in the ocean halfway home, right? And it sinks to the bottom of the ocean, and there's never a problem again. But Aramdir chooses to give the hilt to Theo first, so that Theo can be the one to give it up to the Numenorians, so that he can be, he can be the one to make that choice. Um, Arondir seems to believe that it's important for, the, for Theo's own healing to make that decision, to reject the power of the hilt. He talks about, we hear his temptation, right? We hear his temptation as he's talking about the hilt, talking about how it made him feel powerful, right? Um, which is understandable. But it, Theo is a great, in that way, he's a great sort of stand-in for all of the people of the Southlands, right? He's a child. He's old enough uh, to sort of look at things kind of like an adult, but not yet have the strength or respons- responsibilities of an adult. We see this when he's sent into the inn, right, rather than to be out fighting with everybody else. Um, he's this marginalized figure who identifies himself with them, but he's not yet... Um, He's, he's not able to stand on his own. And that's like all of the people of the Southlands, right? They were separate from the elves who were in charge of things, but they were not trusted, right, on their own. They were not trusted to make their own choices. They were being watched constantly as if they were children, right? So Theo is in that place. He's sort of parallel for the whole, stand-in for the whole Southlanders. And what does he talk about? His temptation, that when he had the hilt, when he was making this fiery, shadowy blade emerge from the hilt, um, he didn't feel helpless, right? He, had a, he was willing to go back to the village in part uh, to find food back in episode three, I think it was, no, four, episode four. He was willing to do that um, because he, he felt strong, right? He had a secret that, uh, that nobody else knew about. Um, and this temptation of power, the power to do good, Right, the power to protect that which you love, the, this is that's a very good thing, right? Um, but it can be dangerous, right? The ends do not justify the means ever in Tolkien's world, and so what Thea was talking about there showed us that there's something really important still going on within within him, and I think Arondir was right to think that he needed to hand the hilt over. He needed to make that choice to deliberately surrender that power, and that if he didn't, it might be, if that were just taken from him and given away, it might, he might take away a long-term wound from that, and a long-term temptation to fill that void with something else, right? And it did not resolve, right? 
Um, I said at the very beginning that um, I didn't have good feelings about where Theo's character was headed, right? Um, I will say, in the last couple episodes, in episodes four and five, Theo's been trending upwards a little bit, um, especially when he confessed to Arondir and showed him the hilt, right? I was impressed. I was surprised, frankly, and impressed that Theo went in that direction. He seemed to be moving towards the light, right, in a lot of ways. I thought that he was moving towards healing of some of the anger and some of the po- that sense of powerlessness and the anger that came from that, right, all of that stuff that he was struggling with that we saw in episodes one and two. I thought he was making some progress, right, but we can see it's still there. It's not fully resolved, and now the hilt is gone. He's not going to have a chance to do that, right? So where is he going to be left now? Um, how might that wound that spiritual wound, right, of that temptation to reach out for power to fill that void. How might that continue to fester in coming episodes? Going to be a big question with Theo. But finally, I want to talk about what was one of the most beautiful scenes in this episode, I thought, which was the reconciliation between Elendil and Isildur. Um, There's been distance and tension between Isildur and Elendil, and it's been really interesting to see on the one hand, it's plain that Elendil, that they care for each other, right? That Isildur really cares what his father thinks of him and that Elendil really, really loves his son, right? But one of the places where we see the tension between them, where the tension seems to emerge, and we see this first in that, um, that first dinner scene between Elendil and Isildur and Ayarian, um, which was back, I think, in episode three. And uh, back there we saw that they have very different visions of how they're supposed to fit in with relationship to the broader Numenorean society. And Lendil loves Numenor, and certainly at the very least wishes his children to fit in so that they don't get in trouble. He's trying to protect his children. But at first, although it looked at first like maybe he was just trying to protect them, it was clear in episode 5 that Elendil really does care. He really loves Numenor. Um, and Isildur is rebelling against Numenor, and therefore kind of extending that rebellion to his own father, right? And that seems to be part of this distance between them. The way that they come together, right, through that experience of being in battle together and Elendil's life being in danger, um, that moment which ends with, with Isildur saying, do you think you could teach me, right? Um, teach him the things that Elendil learned from Isildur's mother, right, from Elendil's wife, um, uh, we know that one of the things that's been consistent with Isildur from the beginning was his love for Beric, his horse. Um, that's, Beric is clearly like the most important thing in Isildur's life right now, right? Um, and that, uh, so I thought it was particularly beautiful that what Elendil was able to teach him there in that moment, right? The thing that kind of bridged the gap between them was what he knew, what the father knew about horses, about his horse, that Isildur didn't know. And that his mother also, who's clearly very important to Isildur, was also kind of in the middle of that, was particularly beautiful. Um, Big fan of the uh, healing hug of reconciliation between Isildur and Elendil, right before the world explodes. Um, But, so we do see a bunch of things that are healed, some wounds that still remain, um, but we did see some, uh, some, some healing of multiple different kinds in this episode.
we see a couple different friend groups uh, in this episode. I could talk, for instance, about Isildur and his friends, but what I want to focus on for the friendship theme for this episode is Galadriel and Halbrand. So just in case you're curious, yes, I am totally friend-zoning Galadriel and Halbrand. Enough said. Um, well, I'll come back to this a little bit later on, but Let's think about Galadriel and Halbrand and how their friendship, how their relationship works. Because I do think that that came into emphasis uh, in that scene, which was a little bit uncomfortable. But like what they were saying was good. Um, uh, but, and I'm really glad that they didn't kiss or anything. But um, when we think about the two of them together, the two of them are characters with some basic similarities. right? Both of them are outcasts, isolated from the rest of their people. Right? I mean, they, like they literally are both on the same raft in the middle of the ocean. They're both adrift, right? Both of them separated from their people um, by this figurative uh, distance as well as this sort of literal distance, right? Just adrift on the wide ocean together, right? But both of them are in that same position. Both of them have been touching the darkness a very great deal, right? Both of them have been, have experienced bad things. Both of them have been scarred, both by the things that they have seen and by the things that they have done, right? So they're similar in some ways, but there's a bunch of differences between the two of them too, right? One of the biggest differences that we see between Goadriel and Halbrand from the beginning is that Halbrand is invested in running away from his problems, whereas Galadriel is committed towards, to running towards them, right? Um, so they have a very different approach to how they deal with the darkness, to how they deal with their, uh, with their issues, right? Um, but we've also seen that they're kind of good for each other, right? We saw this especially, I thought, in episode five, um, Halbrand's confession to Galadriel. He didn't go into details, right? But his confession that he had done things um, that if she knew, he would, she would, you know, she would, she would despise him for it, and all of the Numenorians would despise him if they knew, right? Um, that confession by Halbrand seemed to trigger her in making her own confession, even potentially to trigger her own realization of what she had been and how her own friends and um, uh, and, and people had been seeing her, right? Um, we can see this bond between them as, you know, the, the relationship to vengeance, right? Remember, Goadriel makes the makes the comparison, right? She makes the metaphor that, or well, it's a simile, um, that, you know, taking vengeance is like uh, trying to, to, to satisfy a thirst by drinking seawater, right? Um, it is something that is like the thing that is going to satisfy your thirst, but it is not possible that it can satisfy your thirst. It's just going to do harm to you instead, right? Um, and both of them sort of need to hear this, right? For both of them, this is important. And of course, we see that come into crisis in this episode as she explicitly alludes to the seawater simile, right? When um, Halbrand is there about to drive his spear through Adar's neck um, out of vengeance for whatever it was that Adar had done to him before. I have some ideas, but we can talk about those elsewhere. Um, but of course, Halbrand himself is aware, becomes aware, right, um, expresses himself to be aware of the fact that the two of them are good together when he describes that it felt good, right? It felt good to be out there with her, right? That for him to be fighting um, the way that he was, to be doing 
He had been resentful of the position she had placed him in. She was manipulating him. She was using him, right? That's the language of episode five, right? But now that he made the choice himself to go there, right? Made the choice himself to take up that symbol, right? That scene of him walking away from the, the, the sigil that he leaves on the table and then coming back and swiping it off the table and bringing it with him, right? He makes that choice. And having made that choice, he likes it, right? He likes the person that he is when he is fighting side by side with Galadriel. Um, so again, the two of them, I think, are good for each other, are helpful for each other. And I hope that I will be really interested to see how this friendship grows. The reason I say this is, of course, I have a more than uh, passing suspicion uh, that they are going to end up romantically entangled. Um, I'm hoping that this doesn't happen. Um, at this point, it would feel like dodging a bullet. Um, as I said, that one scene when Halbrand was talking about how much he enjoyed it, uh, they're fighting together, I mean, um, got a little tense, uh, and I was a little bit worried that there was going to be some kissing that was going to go on. Now, let me explain why I don't like this, why I don't want Halbrand and Galadriel to kiss, um, why I don't want there to be a romance. Of course, on the one level, as I already explained about Arondir and Bronwyn, Elves mate for life. Like, elves don't just, like, date people to try to figure out, you know, it's like, they know and they commit. Um, so the idea of Galadriel herself becoming entangled with Halbrand romantically is troublesome. That is problematic. Um, now, Halbrand being in love with Galadriel, well, yeah, that's fine, right? Who isn't? Right? I, I mean, we see lots of people falling in love with Galadriel when they meet her, right? Just ask Gimli. Uh, so that Halbrand would um, be, emo you know, would be invested, right? Would be interested in her. That there would be sort of tension on his side. I would absolutely expect that to happen, given that it's Galadriel, right? Um, but if there's going to be any reciprocity on her side, um, if she's going to kiss him back, right? It's gonna, that's going to be a bad sign. Let me just say, that will be a bad, bad sign. I already, after episode six, am pretty worried about where Galadriel is. I mean, I'm worried for her, that is, right? She's, remember I said last time she might be headed towards a crash? I'm not sure she's not in the middle of crashing uh, in episode six. And I think that if she were to kiss Halbrand, that would be what a crash looks like <laughs> from Galadriel's point of view. Um, so as I say, I'm, but I'm still not without hope. I, have n I, I do not have no hope uh, that in fact it will be avoided. Um, and although we may get close to it, um, that it is not going to happen on her part. But at the very least, howsoever that is handled, I do think that their friendship is both revealing and important. There was a lot of light and darkness in this episode, for sure. Of course, in a sense, light and darkness were looming over the entire episode with the light of day and the sun and the darkness and shadow that is going to be brought by the eruption of the volcano. Though, of course, people didn't know that earlier on in the episode with what was going to happen. Um, but the transformation of this uh, sun-filled land where the orcs uh, are, you know, cowering in fear from the sun, the transformation of that into the place where shadows lie um, is, of course, as I say, 
um, a, an overarching concept in this episode. But the two specific moments for light and darkness that I wanted to focus on were uh, a scene with Alendo and a scene with Galadriel. I want to think about Alendo and the Numenorians. So there's that moment when Alendo, when the, the when Middle Earth comes into view for the first time, right? Um, and it's pretty clear that Alendo has never seen Middle Earth before, which is important. Remember, I was saying before we don't know what the Sea Guard is up to necessarily. Are the Numenorians already sailing back and forth to Middle Earth? But it seems no. Elendil, who is a captain in the Sea Guard, um, does not has never had never been to Middle Earth before. So that was interesting to learn. But remember, he speaks of that moment of sort of disorientation, right? Um, where he has lived in Numenor all his life. So he is used to looking out to the east and seeing the sun rising over the sea and then seeing it set over the land right uh, behind him because he lives on the eastern side of Numenor. Um, and this kind of disorientation, I think, is something that maybe many of us can relate to. I know I've lived on the east coast most of my life, so I've seen the sun rise over the Atlantic uh, before. But I remember how strange it was the first time I saw the sun set over the Pacific. Uh, seeing the sun go down into the ocean seemed weird, seemed wrong from anything I'd ever seen in my life to that point. Um, so on the one hand, it's that simple kind of disorientation, right? And yet it was clear how that also mapped onto the sort of symbolic landscape of this episode as well, right? When Elendo says, I know that we're sailing into the dawn, and yet it looks like the coming of night, right? And that was such a weighted sentence, right? Um, especially if we're remembering Muriel and the prophecy of her father, Tar Palantir, who said, if you go to Middle-earth, all you will find is darkness, right? And it's the whole question, the whole question which has been dominating the light and darkness theme since episode one when Finrod defined its terms, right? And that is, what is the light that you're following? Are you really facing upward or are you facing downward? Are you being drawn down like the stone or are you sailing like the ship following the sun and the light up in the sky? And it is unclear, right? That reversal that Elendo has, that almost premonition that he has felt really ominous. Are they doing the right thing? Um, we had this doubt with Muriel from Tar Palantir from episode five, right? And now Elendil seems to speak to the same thing. They're doing a good thing. They're rescuing the Southlands. They're opposing the orcs and the armies of Sauron. This seems like a great thing to do and a great thing to accomplish, right? But is this the dawn or is it the coming of night? Which way are they facing? Right? And that, again, which way are they facing has really been at the core of the light and darkness theme from the beginning. But Galadriel, who of course has been at the very heart, uh, this is her theme all the way through the entire show so far. Um, and this was a crucial moment for her. Right? On the one hand, this looked like this was the fulfillment. Right? This is what she had always wanted. She'd been hunting for the orcs. Where are they? She's found them. Right? They're in what will, in just a moment, become Mordor. Right? Um, she's been knowing that Sauron is building up his forces. Sauron is moving forward. Darkness is preparing to spread over the, over the world again. And she has to find it. She wants to find it. And she wants to stop it happening. And look, she's found it. And she comes in charging on a white horse. And they win the battle. And the orcs are defeated. And this is great. Right? So on the one hand, this looks like her. She's doing just the right thing. She is on the right path. She is fulfilling all of her dreams, right? But which direction is she pointed? Is she riding into the dawn or is she riding into the coming of night, right? Um, is she sinking like a stone or is she looking up at the light? 
and her conversation with Adar is really disturbing, right? We see the disgust that she has for Adar, right? Um, there's pity there, I think, as well, especially at the beginning of their conversation when she s- says how when she was a child she heard stories of those elves that were taken by Morgoth and tortured and turned into the first orcs. And so we get the confirmation that that's what Adar is, right? We speculated about that a few episodes back, and now we see, yeah, that is exactly what Adar is, right? Um, But as the conversation goes on, Adar continues to draw parallels between them. On the one hand, the two of them are opposites of each other, right? He is twisted and scarred and ugly, and she is beautiful, right? He is, has this matte black hair, and she is this gorgeous, radiant blonde, right? She's in shining armor, and he's in, uh, in his, like, black, um, beat-up armor, right, and dirty clothes. The two of them seem to be in deliberate contrast, and from a distance, right, looking at the two of them, they look like light and darkness standing there, right? Even with her standing up and him being down, on the floor, right? Even their positioning suggests the light and darkness thing, right? And yet, throughout the conversation, Adar continues to insist on the similarity between the two of them, right? My children are children of the one just as you are, right? And then furthermore, he says that she mirrors him, right? Um, I, it seems that I am not the only elf here who was twisted by the darkness, he says, right? And this, that is a shot that strikes home, right? She feels that. She was just saying that in episode six. That was her confession to Halbrand, right? That she fears that her friends and allies among the elves couldn't tell the difference between her and the evil that she was fighting, right? And now Adar says practically the same thing. And it burns her. Right? She loses it when he says this, right? Um, and you remember, he closes by saying, uh, you know, perhaps if you were looking for the, uh, you know, the heir of Morgoth, right? Maybe you should have, maybe your search should have ended in your own mirror, right? Of course, the reference to the mirror is a lovely little Easter egg, right, to the mirror of Galadriel uh, later on. The association between Galadriel and mirrors is pretty strong from the book. But apart from that, um, again, that, 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 that mirror reflection, right? The implication that Adar is making, right? That she is looking in a mirror, right? He might be an Uruk whose blood runs black, right? But what is she? Where is she? Um, and she ends up by almost drinking the seawater, right? She barely restrains herself from slitting his throat right there. And what does she do? She promises vengeance, Right? Um, she promises vengeance. She swears to kill all of his children and to kill him last, right? Well, I mean, it's horrible, right? Galadriel is sinking like a stone here, and it seems to be a reflection. On the one hand, the rescue mission, right? What she's arranged from Numenor and coming in and rescuing the town, this is great. All seems like a great thing, right? And yet, um, it leads her, by the end of the episode, um, to be sinking deep, deep down into the darkness. Um, I do think that that moment at the end of her conversation with Adar might be pretty close 
to that crash that I was wondering if Galadriel was approaching. Um, she still has not yet seen. She still has not seen the light that she needs to turn and see, right? Um, I think that there's, there is definitely hope for Galadriel, but boy, um, she has not yet started to turn that ship around, right? Um, so we will see where things go from here. Um, but Galadriel needs some help here at the end of episode six. And then we get that final vision, right? Which I thought was so powerful. And I know that there were many people who were saying, man, volcano, like that kind of pyroclastic cloud is going to destroy everything that it comes across. Um, and, but I kind of didn't care because what I, lo- I loved the visual image, right? Galadriel in her shining armor, just standing there, transfixed, watching the cloud of darkness and fire, which looked so much like the shadow and flame of the sword that emerged from the hilt, right? It's like that sword hilt, which was stuck into the ground, becomes like the mountain itself, right? It's like becomes a little symbol of the whole mountain. Um, And now the clouds are rolling out and just envelop Galadriel. Everybody else scrambling around trying to find cover and Galadriel just standing there staring into the darkness as the darkness comes and envelops her. I kind of hope that this is the low point for Galadriel's character. In episode six, we get our first eucatastrophe. Now, this is a big deal. Let me explain that term. That's a word that Tolkien made up. Um, catastrophe. so it's E-U and then the word catastrophe. E-U is a, a prefix from Greek, which just means good or happy or uh, harmonious. Um, so the eucatastrophe is the good catastrophe. This is the word that Tolkien made up to talk about the happy ending at the end of fairy stories, how fairy stories provide often a eucatastrophe, when all of a sudden there's a sudden turn and everything suddenly works out at the end. Um, the most famous eucatastrophe in Tolkien's work is at the end of The Hobbit. The eagles are coming! The eagles are coming! That's the eucatastrophe at the end of The Hobbit, when it looks like everything is going to end up very, very badly, but then all of a sudden the eagles come and rescue them. Um, This idea of the sudden turn of victory uh, suddenly being snatched away from defeat and tragedy, um, this, he felt, was a really important point of consolation that uh, fairy tales have to offer to show that happy endings like this are possible. Um, Eucatastrophes, therefore, are really important in Tolkien's work. Of course, we also see there are wonderful examples, small examples of eucatastrophe here and there. Um, Even, again, within The Hobbit, Gandalf showing up to help the trolls turn into stone Right at the end of uh, the encounter with the trolls way back in chapter 2 of The Hobbit is another little example of eucatastrophe. Um, but of course, we see in The Lord of the Rings many examples of eucatastrophe. One of the biggest and most, my most favorite of the eucatastrophes uh, of The Lord of the Rings is the arrival of Aragorn um, at the Harland in the Battle of Pelennor Field when it looks like the battle is lost and Aemir who has just been chanting death, right, right now to ruin in the world's ending. Um, and he then sees the black sails of their enemies coming to reinforce, uh, he believes, right, the orcs and, and their foes. And then all of a sudden, the 
the, the banner of Gondor is revealed on top of the ships, and he realizes that they, in fact, are saved instead. Um, and the laughter of the Rohirrim, oh, that moment makes me cry every time I read The Lord of the Rings, and that is a classic moment of eucatastrophe. We get our first little eucatastrophe uh, in the entire Rings of Power show here in Episode 6, when it looks like things have gone way downhill, right? Uh, the battle at the village of the Southlanders has been lost, um, and uh, many have died, and many are being killed in front of their eyes, right, as Adar is about to get the hilt of the sword, and whatever horrible thing is going to happen is going to happen, um, and everything looks horrible, and then the Numenorians show up, right? Then we get Galadriel on her white horse, and the Numenorian cavalry, and they come sweeping in, and we have a eucatastrophe. The look on the faces of Arondir and Bronwyn and Theo as they come out of the house, right, where they had been held by the orcs, believing they were all going to... Now, Bronwyn doesn't come walking out because she's still un mostly unconscious, but nevertheless, Arondir and Theo do, right? And the looks on their faces when they come out and the, 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 the shock and surprise, um, the wonder as they're trying to figure out what's going on, and you can hear it in the voice of Arondir when he explains to Theo who that beautiful elf woman is, right, in armor, who's leading the battle. Um, you can hear the awe in his face. He can't believe this is happening, right? Um, that moment, that affirmation of hope that you catastrophe is, it's such an important thing. I just wanted to emphasize it because we got our first one. I don't think it'll be our last one over the course of this show, and I think it's only really just setting up things before. And as I've been saying in some of my other segments... I don't think that the Numenorians coming to Middle-earth and, and intervening here is a unilaterally good thing, especially for the Numenorians or for Galadriel. There are clearly some problems, some issues here. But from, from the perspective of those people who were uh, in the tavern, right, and who, upon whom the orcs had broken in and who were starting to be uh, killed and were pr probably going to be tortured to death, um, this is a catastrophe. And I put this in the fate category because it's important to realize this kind of coincidence, this is a big deal in Tolkien's world. These are the kinds of things that happen all the time in Tolkien's stories. When what looks like a coincidence of things, that they, how is it that the Numenorians were able to arrive just then, just in time to rescue them at that moment, right? Those kind of coincidences are exactly the kind of chance meetings of chance overlappings in which we can routinely see the hand of fate in operation in Tolkien's world. The theme of hope in this episode is really focused on the battle in Bronwyn's village, and we see it manifested in two different ways right before the battle begins. First, Arondir is trying to rev up the crowd, right? And he's asking them, you know, do you believe that you can win? And they're all like, yeah, kind of, right? And he's trying to get them to yell louder, right? What he's doing there is trying to build up their Amdir, the kind of hope which is an expectation that things are going to turn out well, right? Um, that is, as I explained last time, not the primary kind of hope, not the highest kind of hope, 
right? That is estel, the kind of hope that is closer to faith. And remember that faith is the thing that opposes fear in Goadriel's terms from back in episode four, right? And this kind of hope, the estel hope, is what Bronwyn talks about with Theo when Theo recalls her to what she used to say to him when he was afraid in the dark. And the line that she quotes is a, a line that's very dear uh, to many of us. Uh, for many people, it is their favorite uh, quotation uh, from The Lord of the Rings. Um, it's what <clears throat> she says. In the end, the shadow is but a small and passing thing, and there is light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. That's the quote from the book. Now, by the way, that, of course, is the quote from Sam Gamgee. Well, it's from the narrator telling us what Sam Gamgee is thinking. And where he's thinking it is in Mordor, actually quite close geographically to where uh, Bronwyn's village is um, when he and Frodo are on their way to Mount Doom. Now, Bronwyn adds, and this, is, this really picks up the terminology from the light and darkness theme, some of Finrod's terminology. She says, find the light and the shadow will not find you. Right? which, of course, anticipates the ring verse about how uh, the one ring will be used uh, you know, to, to, to find people and to bring them and bind them in the darkness. Right? Um, but the, op the opponent to that, the opposition to that, is Estelle, is high hope, the kind of hope that is connected with Arendel's star, um, which is what Sam sees through the shadow in that one moment in Mordor. And it's what brings to Sam in the book in that moment peace, and rest, allowing him to let go, not to live with fear, but instead to trust, to faith. And that is what Bronwyn is arguing for uh, to Theo. So I thought it was a really powerful moment in this episode, that right before the battle, which is one of the darkest scenes that we've had in the entire series so far, we get this reminder of both kinds of hope. We see Arandir with uh, trying to raise Amdir, and then we see Bronwyn and Theo holding on to Estelle and Bronwyn urging uh, Theo to always remember that he can hold on to hope and that the shadow is but a small and passing thing in the end. Okay, what a week. Uh, episode six, um, a lot of ground was covered, a lot of new material, but also a very different structure to what we've seen before. Uh, we were talking about it on the Twitter show, um, that instead of having all of our little storylines, we mostly just focused on two storylines coming together into one very quickly. So we just had one storyline through this whole this whole episode. I almost called it a film. Um, and it was really interesting to be able to spend that time with the characters. Um, I really felt like I turned a corner in caring about a lot of these characters this time, um, because we had those opportunities for engagement between the characters. We cared about the risk to their lives and what they cared about. Um, so all of a sudden Bronwyn and Theo became a much stronger duo in my mind and therefore the risk was so much higher. Um, I was having a really interesting conversation with our director, Ben, and he was talking about the threat and why we might not have cared so much um, so all credit to him, but he pointed out, we're not sure what they're fighting for because they weren't very happy or good beforehand. And um, that really sat with me. So when you think about Bronwyn and Theo, we don't know where they came from beforehand because we haven't seen it. So they never really looked happy or peaceful. They kind of always seemed a little bit disenchanted and frustrated. 
So it feels low risk because I'm not sure why they're fighting so hard. Of course, we know they're trying to protect their lands and their home and everything, but it doesn't feel like it's much to protect if you if you get what I mean. So it was nice to spend time with these characters, really start to see the relationship between Arendir and Bronwyn and how natural that was. Um, and we assume well established. It's not, you know, new feelings. Um, and the relationship between Bronwyn and Theo, um, just to see a little bit more depth to that and tenderness, you know, uh, tell me what you used to tell me when I was a child and scared. And then we have that beautiful discussion about shadows and light. And that was just lovely. So it was nice to spend that time with everybody and, and engage a little bit more because I cared. Like there was something on the line once the battle started and I'm, I wasn't convinced I was going to care <laughs> once the battle started. So it was nice to have that. So I do want to talk about one of the battles. Um, purely for shot analysis, though. So, you know, we know the main plot of what was going through here. And Corey, of course, is going to discuss all the lore and what that means and where these things came from. But I want to look at storytelling through some of these battle scenes as well, because it's really telling. Um, so the first one I'm going to look at is uh, that first attack on the village when they take the tower down um, and what happens afterwards when they're down in the village and the, the ones that can't fight are in the tavern and everybody else is defending the town. Um, so take a look at that shot wise. And then the second one I'm going to talk about, uh, is Galadriel's interrogation of Adar. So in this first one, we're about 24 minutes into episode one. Um, we're seeing a, a bog standard battle scene, right? So what does that mean? Battle scenes can be constructed in so many different ways, right? Um, we're probably well used to some of the like, you know, Braveheart kind of ideas of this really wide shot and galloping horses and, you know, aerial shots to see what's going on um, on the battlefield. We get some really interesting takes here um, on battle scenes and a lot of things that help put us into the fighting. And that's what I really appreciated. Um, I was just watching a thing about um, a single shot in the Northlands um, film um, and how it was all done in a single shot for a battle and how that didn't really work necessarily because you need some cuts sometimes to make this action happen. So taking us through some of these cuts builds up the pace, builds up the tension, builds up the risk. Whereas when it's a one long single shot, it can be hard to kind of maintain that unless there's a ton of action and dynamic action going on. So whereas in this scene, we have a lot of dynamic action, but the way that they've edited it together, I think really worked. Um, we have some contrasting action, first of all. So we've got Arendir fighting elves pretty much single-hand, sorry, fighting orcs pretty much single-handedly first. Um, we see him hand-to-hand -hand combat. We see him really adept with his bow and arrow shooting and downward angles from an aerial position shooting down onto the victim, you know, so the very much this I am powerful, I am in charge vibe as they zero in on the target. But we're also able to see both Arendir and the orc in the shot. We know what the threat is. We see what's about to come. And then they'll cut to inside the tavern. And then we get the what's at risk. So then we see what they're fighting for and how scary that is. So we see the shaking of the candles on the log and we we hear kind of the exclamations of, oh goodness, what's going on? That's, that's really unknown and therefore that's really terrifying. All of these shots are quite close and quite dark. So the dark actually kind of bothered me because I wanted to see a bit more of the action. But I did appreciate how close they were. It wasn't an extreme close-up like we see later on in the interrogation scene and things like that um, to start. Um, but... It's, it's basically a medium shot that takes in the setting and where Arendir is. So I'm looking at the scene where he starts on top of the roof. 
um, and then falls down to a secondary roof and then falls down onto the ground. It looks like a single shot. When you watch it, it looks like it's all one movement, moving from the roof to the middle roof to the ground to then battling that ginormous orc. It looks like it's all one shot, but I do think there are two edits in there. When he hits the first roof, um, it looks like there's a bit of special effect trickery going on. Um, and then same when he hits the ground, there's a passing of Orc's feet in front of him. And I think there's a cut there as well that probably switches from the stunt, stunt person um, back to um, Aaron Deere. So uh, Ismail. Um, so then we have this massive Orc stepping in. And then the camera starts to pan back a little bit to show us where we are. We're in the village, but we're moving this action into a very hand-to-hand -hand combat way. The big giant orc is framed in the center of the shot and he takes up the entirety of the center of the shot and all you see is him moving towards you. So it's not even a pan in to make it seem like he's really powerful. It's almost in a front, you know, it's a, it's a static camera with him moving straight towards you as the viewer, but also towards Arendir. So, you know, the, the threat is quite massive. Then it turns into more of a hand to hand combat. Um, we see the skill of the elves in Erendir doing the, the fancy kicks and things like that. But we also start to see a lot more downward shots. So a high angle looking down at Erendir. So that's perspective from the tall orc, but also the threat of Erendir not being able to hold his own at the moment. We then get a moment to break away to hand-to-hand -hand combat and shaky um, hand cam uh, handicam from uh, the villagers battle to understand that all of Arendir's battle is going on while that is also happening. So it's a melee, right? Just chaos. But then we go back onto these two and you don't see anything else. You see torches in the background, but there's not a lot of immediate action around them. For me, that is focusing in on the hand-to-hand -hand individual battle of this moment. I also thought the first time I watched this that this scene was really long and it was a little bit painfully long. Now that I've watched it two or three times, I'm kind of feeling that vibe. So because he's separated from the villagers and because there is this intense hand-to-hand -hand combat with one orc, it feels incredibly desperate. It feels very threatening. Um, and it really helps me focus in on this individual challenge. So I really started to grow <laughs> on this um, and appreciate the time that I got to spend with Erendir fighting his hardest, really putting his life on the line for this village that doesn't frankly want him, but also for Bronwyn, who we know he cares desperately about. Um, so it looks like he's, you know, on the, the downturn and not doing very well. I thought he was going into the well at one point. Uh, and then we have him pinned onto the wall of the well, lots of up, sh up angles and down angles um, to show that kind of power struggle. Um, and we're staying real close to the action. The camera doesn't pan, the camera doesn't turn away. And it's that not turning away. It's not a static shot, there is still some movement, but it's pretty steady on this duo. There's a couple of pan backs where we still see the chaos is going on behind them, but it doesn't tear away from the threat of taking that spike out of his eye, the black blood starting to gush and pour onto him, which is revolting, but then the spike turning and going towards his eye. And the spike itself is almost like a corkscrew, right? It's like a drill going into his eye. So the threat is intense, it is close, it is unwavering, it is unrelenting, and the camera takes us there. You know, it shows us the real risk that we have going on here and the inability to shift because we can't turn away. The camera doesn't turn away and therefore Aaron Deer can't turn away. We know that he is pinned and he is stuck. 
then you add in the music you add in you know the the pacing that that brings and it's just building 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 and then we get Bronwyn has has killed the attacker and that is a straight shot as well so that you know strong steady middle of the frame he's relieved they're both feeling and we get cheering in the background from the villagers so all of that culminated in excellent timing. I mean, isn't that convenient? But excellent timing that Bronwyn killed the giant orc at the same time everybody else was uh, slayed and subdued as well. So all of that, <laughs> all of that to say there's lots of different ways that you can shoot a fight scene, but I liked the way that they chose to do that. It highlighted Arendir's abilities. It intensified my uh, attention to him and why he's fighting and what he's fighting for. It made me sit with some pretty uncomfortable things for a while um, and and kind of gauge my reaction of, of how much he cares about this. And it was nice to be able to spend that time with the character because I do care a fair bit more. Um, and also good to just kind of see the the camera work at play, playing with that power dynamic um, and, and not shifting, not letting us shift. So <laughs> that is fight scene number one. Um, I'll probably also do a little bit of uh, digging around in the next couple weeks, and I think for the finale, pull out some of my favorite shots cinematically, because there were a few real stunners in this episode. Um, just how they're framed, how they're put together, they're beautiful, and I hope the stills are available <laughs> somewhere sometime for us to purchase and hang on walls, because it's, it's really some artistic merit uh, in terms of establishing shots and movement, um, the one that's immediately coming to mind is uh, Gladriel riding her white horse in the middle of the sea of brown horses as they charge towards the village to help. Um, just some really beautiful, stunning shots. Okay, the second scene I want to take a look at is the discussion in the barn between between uh, Gladriel and Adar. This was a big one. Um, a lot of people messaged me saying, talk about that one. Uh, we want to hear about the Dutch angle. Happily. Um that's pretty much all there is to share in this one though so I, I want to like focus on that and just kind of explain what that is and what that does to the scene but also um, signal up a few other things to just keep an eye out through the rest um, of of this series so the Dutch angle is just a way to hold the camera that changes the vibe um, and that's what shots do you know um, every scene is made up a series of shots and the shots are put together in such a way that yes shows us images and lets us hear dialogue but the way they're set up and the angle that they filmed at and the 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 way that they kind of zoom in or zoom out or pan back it's it all tells a story so all of these things kind of give us a feeling in addition to the information we're seeing on the screen as well so the dutch angle is one of the the most powerful angles um and it's it's known for being really unsettling so i'm going to take it a little bit before that we have uh the shot previous to the barn is uh Isil and his friends talking outside of it. And it's quite pastoral, it's quite cheery. They've just won the battle, things are really positive, um, they're feeling pretty good about the adventures that they're going on and what's next and when do we leave? And he says, oh, it depends what's happening in that barn. So we have this nice straight shot of the three friends in frame, things are jovial, pleasant. And then we cut to the barn and immediately it is a complete contrast. Um, the Dutch angle means that the camera is off-center, so instead of having our straight axis across and straight up and down, we're skewed. Uh, so it just changes the perspective um, of the camera to be angled, and it just makes you feel unsettled or quite unnerved. 
Um, it's, it's from uh, early 1900 cinema, and it was really popular in German cinema um, as, as a way that they would kind of project uncertainty and, and disconcerting feelings in even silent film. Um, and that's why uh, it's called the Dutch Angle. So it came from Deutsch, you know, and, and now it's just slang for that's, that's what it is, just a, a camera on the skew. But that is used throughout the entirety of this scene. So we start on this uh, image of a Dutch angle skewed, an Adar sitting in the dark. So in addition to the Dutch angle, we also have uh, high angles and low angles. So we've got a look down on Adar from Galadriel's perspective. Um, and that downward angle is meant to make him smaller, is meant to make him skewed. But then we also have this upward angle of Adar looking at Galadriel, making her look more powerful, making her seem strong. Those, those are the standard like identifiers of a low angle and a high angle. So, you know, having that kind of perspective just changes how you feel about those characters. What I find really interesting is combining that with a Dutch angle. If you combine it with a Dutch angle, then it's making me question, is she in charge? Is he less powerful? You know, like we've said before, they're really setting us up to not know who to trust in this scenario. This made me feel like both of them were a little bit off off kilter, right? Like they're both a little unhinged when it comes to this because they believe so passionately in their quests. So instead of having a straight shot and, you know, the two of them in a frame, we have this back and forth with this skewed angle and way different eye lines. So it's not a straight across look. He's sitting down, she's standing up, sure. But we also have up angles on him from underneath his chin, looking up into his face as he talks about uh, Sauron being devoted to healing Middle-earth. Well, that almost makes him seem a little more powerful and in charge of this situation, which he obviously isn't because he's chained to a post, right? Um, and then same with Galadriel, we have these shots of her eyeline looking down at him seeming quite intimidating, but because of the Dutch angle, it skews the entire thing. So it makes it a really difficult scene to read filmically. You don't really know what they're trying to portray, and I think that's the point. <laughs> um, so it was a really amazing scene. Lore-wise, we got so much backstory, and it was so interesting to hear why Adar feels the way that he feels and why he's on this quest, and it's a, a brilliant perspective to kind of have depth to the bad guy, um, but also just the way it's shot. We also get a really beautiful moment of flashback um, in this, and we see the, the the high north again where we saw it in episode one, but from a different perspective, right? So the way they, they film that is pretty standard, just lots of pans showing us um, skeletons and and uh, artifacts from the, the experiences that Sauron had up there, but a different meaning attached to it because of the dialogue that's on board. So it's familiar, but now it's totally different. So this scene just as a whole was really interesting because it's just totally different from what I think you would get at first glance. You know, this isn't a prisoner interrogation of a good guy and a bad guy. I'm now questioning Galadriel, you seem a bit unhinged and Adar, you seem crazy, but also I understand why you think you're right. And the way that it's filmed just kind of sets me up for that. It does have this kind of off kilter not sure who to believe, not sure how to feel. I, I feel completely unsettled about the whole thing. And it goes all the way into the last shot of the scene. When Halbrand comes in, upsets 
the the motivation when she's ready to slice his neck and she stops and then he asks who are you it's still dutch angles we still have this off-kilter view that's very unsettling and then it goes to pastoral bliss again and a straight shot of galadriel in a glade and it's beautiful it's level it's set it's grounding so the whole point of this scene is to make all of us go something's wrong and to question it um and i, I really think they accomplished that beautifully with these shots <laughs> Well, in episode six, we spend a lot of time with Adar and the orcs. So I think we should probably get in the mood. Let's get into orc mode here, guys. That's much better. Okay, so back in episode four, I spent, a, I spent a little bit of time talking about the origins of orcs, where Tolkien came from, and how the idea of the orcs evolved in his mind. I want to return to that today because we need a little bit more background in order to really understand the implications of what happened there in episode six. So you may recall that I said at the beginning, back when he first started writing in the 19-teens, Tolkien conceived of orcs as mere constructs. They're like little murder robots running around. Not literal robots, they're not made out of metal. In fact, they're made out of mud and slime and hatred and anger. They're infused with the hatred of Morgoth himself. They're made in mockery of elves, right? But they're not real creatures. Um, they are fake constructs that aren't actual people. Or, as Galadriel would say, They are not children, and they are slaves. So, now, there were real advantages to this construction, uh, this, this sort of philosophical construction, right? What it provided for Tolkien was the opportunity to have bad guys who are basically one-dimensional. That is, if, when, when you have, like, the, 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 the good versus evil being depicted, Evil is a constant, right? Evil was simple in that sense. And so resisting evil, fighting against evil, all the complexity could be on the good guy's side, right? Which is where the focus of the story was. Those were his characters. Some of them were succeeding. Some of them were failing, right? They had to struggle with fear. They had to achieve heroism, whatever. But sort of against them on the other side were these much more simplistic figures that you could just fight against and not have to worry about it, right? Um, and so there are serious advantages to that kind of construction. And we can see this bearing fruit in The Lord of the Rings. While writing The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien was still mostly in the place where he was dealing with this idea of orcs as constructs. We can see this, for instance, in Helm's Deep, right? When Gimli and Legolas are competing to see who can kill the most orcs, right? You can tell that in that place and at that point, killing an orc is not a morally complicated situation, right? You're just decommissioning an evil murder bot, right? And that's the way he did it. Now, by the way, little side note here. One of the things that people, have, uh, that people who dislike Tolkien have often said in criticism of Tolkien is that his stories are really simplistic. It's just really simple black and white. The blacks are totally black and the whites are totally white, right? And there's no shades of gray in Tolkien. Now, this, of course, is a very silly thing to say. Tolkien was extremely sensitive and very, very good at depicting those gray areas and does as good a job as anyone I know of showing how a good person with good intentions 
sins can end up going down a road that leads to darkness, that leads to evil. Um, so he has lots of shades of gray in those things. But I think that that reaction is based on the fact that the orcs were morally simple in this way. They are simply evil, and therefore killing them is not, uh, is not complicated, as I said. However, over time, Tolkien began to become more and more uncomfortable with this idea. And his discomfort was based on, uh, was actually, was based on sort of a philosophical, um, the, the, the philosophical underpinnings of this, right? Let me explain what I mean by that. So basically the problem is the orcs, if the orcs are going to be independent creatures at all, if they have any independent will, if they can make decisions of their own, if they can go off in between, when, the, when Morgoth is not operating them like little automata, right? If they can run on, do what they own, breed on their own, live in their own places, right? And then come in for battles and whatever. In order for them to have any independent existence, they would have to be creatures. They'd have to be people. And he was saying, you know what? Evil can't do that. Evil can't create independent creatures like that. That began to be, he was realizing, this is a really important philosophical premise. Um, so he began to shift his ideas. He began thinking that, no, okay, the philosophical premise at work here is that evil can't create new creatures, new independent creatures. It can't give a soul to a new creature. It can make uh, an, a mockery of a creature, which again is only going to operate when the, the person who made it is focusing on it and manipulating it like a puppet, right? Or if they want to be independent, they have to have been originally people, right? They have to be corrupted people, not just independently made constructs, right? Um, and so this creates puts orcs in a completely different position. If they're going to be in that situation, there are some serious implications. Because, as Adar tells us, We are creations of the one, master of the secret fire, are the same as you. There is, this is a big deal, right? When the orcs are people on their own. The idea, of course, that he began to figure out was, he was like, okay, so what if there were originally orcs, sorry, the originally elves who were captured by Morgoth, right? And he tortures them and he puts his power on them and dominates their wills and he twists them and he makes them into orcs, right? That way, since they're originally elves, you know, they'd be able to like reproduce and they'd be able to make independent decisions and stuff, but they'd be still under his dominion, right? He'd still have corrupted them. But this led to an inescapable conclusion the very inescapable conclusion which Adar himself expresses in episode six, that they are children of the one, orcs are children of the one, same as elves. In other words, the inescapable conclusion of this is that killing an orc does become complicated. Do orcs have free will? They would have to have free will unless Morgoth had the power to strip them of free will forever, them and all of their descendants, right? And how could he do that? Tolkien didn't think he could do that. That Morgoth, He didn't think Morgoth would have the power to do that, right? Then, of course, you have the other question. What happens to them when they die? Do they have souls? Would they go to, to, to Mandos? Would they go to Valinor like the elves do, right? And, and if not, why not, right? Tolkien decided, no, 
that the, the, the elves don't, that Morgoth would not have the ability to change the fundamental fate of the elves. There are some serious consequences to this, right? Um, and he was uncomfortable with these questions too, right? But you can see him beginning to make the shift towards this second idea of orcs in the middle of writing The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien often thought through things and kind of came to realizations while he was writing. Like his characters would start talking and then he would be like, oh yeah, uh, that's what's happening, right? Um, and I think that we can see this happening. In The Lord of the Rings, when Frodo and Sam are on the stairs of Kirithungal about to go into Mordor and Sam is asking, is there food and drink in there? Like, are, are we going to be able to scavenge at all, right? Or, but, you know, probably orcs just live on foul air and poison, he theorizes, right? Which means it's not going to do us any good, right? And Frodo says, no, 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 no. Um, the one who made them, the one who made the orcs, meaning Morgoth, does not have the power to create real new things like that. He can only take what exists and twist it, right? And that, when, as soon as Frodo says that, I think that's actually the moment when Tolkien began to do this shift, right? But as I said, he was not really satisfied with this, even though he kind of wrote that out, this whole corrupted elves thing, which fits better with, this, with, that, with Frodo's philosophical premise there. He wrote that out a bit, and Christopher Tolkien includes that in the Silmarillion. So if you read the Silmarillion, you will find that the origin of orcs is that they're corrupted elves, just like this, right? But as I said, this itself leads to some dissatisfactory, some unsatisfactory conclusions, right? Or at least some questions that Tolkien didn't really have answers to. The free will question. Why is it that the descendants of orcs don't have free will? Because if they do have free will, maybe they might repent. Maybe they might feel bad about what they're doing, which means it's no longer a morally simplistic thing to slaughter the orcs, right? And that's a real challenge. You see, this was what I think in the end Tolkien was kind of choosing before. On the one hand, again, having these morally simplistic enemies was really, really useful for his storytelling. It creates a, a, a simpler situation where all the complexity, as I said, is on the one side of the equation. Now, with the idea of orcs being corrupted elves, it necessarily complicates both sides of the question, right? And really opens things up, opens up questions that he had never really dealt with before, um, at least as regard to orcs in his previous works. Um, Tolkien never resolved this. He, um, he came up with a bunch of other ideas. Um, maybe they're not corrupted elves. He tried to find ways around this to, to sort of solve both problems. He remained steadfast until the end of his life. Um, he never took back the original decision to say, no, no, they can't be constructs. That does not work theologically or philosophically. That can't happen. But how to deal with the free will question, the possibility of repentance, all these things. How could, could, could he find a way to make orcs still a morally simple enemy while nevertheless making it work within you know, the overall theology and philosophy of the world. That was a challenge he never fully solved. He never, he, ne he, ne he never accomplished this. Now, we come back to the Rings of Power. The Rings of Power has made a choice, right? The show has made a choice and it has nowhere been more explicitly stated than it was here in episode six, right? Um, they made the choice to say, yes, we're going with the elf origins of orcs. Orcs are definitely derived from corrupted elves. We speculated before in episode four that that's what Adar was, 
that Adar was one of those original elves who was corrupted by Morgoth and was therefore the father, the Adar, right, of all of the orcs. And that theory was confirmed here in episode six, right? Um, but we hadn't really, I hadn't really fully thought through exactly what that means. And Adar really lays it on Galadriel in episode six, right? They've made the difficult choice. This, a choice so difficult, Tolkien never himself resolved it, right? And having made it, the Rings of Power show is owning the consequences. If orcs are derived from elves, as the Silmarillion, the published Silmarillion states, then the things that Adar says are true, at least mostly true, right? Adar is not wrong about the things that he says. They are children of the one, the same as elves. They are, right? They do have hearts that are worthy of a home, right? Worthy of that, that question of where do orcs belong and what should orcs be doing? Um, what is their place in the world? It is no longer, if they are derived from elves, it is no longer a comfortable answer to that question to say they must all be exterminated, which is what is still said even in the Lord of the Rings itself. Right? You go to the Lord of the Rings and you will find orc genocide all over the place because Tolkien was still, that whole work was begun from the perspective which he had not fully worked out and integrated by the time he finished it. Still written from that original orcs' constructs perspective. This is why at the end of the Battle of the Black Gate, Aragorn hunts down all the orcs and slaughters them all. That's what you do with orcs in the Lord of the Rings. And again, it's not complicated. That's not a morally questionable thing to do. Notice that both after the Battle of Helm's Deep and after the Battle of the Pelennor Field and the Battle of the Black Gate, the humans on the opposing side who surrender are treated with compassion um, and they're, they're given quarter. They're taken prisoner and eventually, in, in some cases, we're told that later on, um, you know, they, they, they come to diplomatic agreements with them, right? This never happens with orcs in The Lord of the Rings, right? Um, but the Rings of Power is operating in a completely different world. And this is the kicker. There are a lot of people, I think, who are probably going to watch episode six of season one and say, oh, look what they're doing. They're totally deviating from Tolkien's world. In Tolkien's world, orcs are just evil. And it's okay to kill them because they're just evil. And now look at this. They're doing this postmodern thing in the Rings of Power where they're saying, oh, like, oh, feel pity for the orcs, right? And like, think about things from their point of view. And we're doing the whole, let's, let's re recuperate the perspective of the bad guy, right? Um, yes, they are doing that to some extent, but they are doing that based on Tolkien's own assertions, right? The decision that they're, they are playing out exactly the consequences. They are owning the consequences that Tolkien himself saw. Now, it is true, Tolkien having seen these consequences, having seen what it would mean, what it would really do to the story, to have elves derived from orcs. This is one of the things that informed Tolkien's decision to leave that behind. He didn't want to mess with this. He didn't want to make a one variable moral problem into a two variable moral problem, right? He was trying to avoid that and find a way around that. He never succeeded in doing it though. He never came up with any actual satisfactory solution to this problem. So in the show, what do I see them doing? I see them choosing one of the options that Tolkien gave very defensible for them to choose the published one in the Silmarillion.
right? And they are playing it out. If you grant that that's true, if you grant that orcs come from elves, then many of the things that Adar says are exactly right, or at least things that we really need to wrestle with. And when Galadriel starts talking about slaying all the orcs, right, slaughtering every orc in the world, it begins to feel pretty uncomfortable in ways that slaughtering all the orcs in the world never did feel uncomfortable in The Lord of the Rings. But again, they're, they're going down the path that Tolkien himself initiated with that theory. And I think that that's pretty interesting. Um, now, Adar himself, as I said, most of the things that Adar says in his conversation with Galadriel are not necessarily wrong, but I do think that Adar himself is pretty delusional. The way that he talks about his orcs, the affection with which he speaks of his children, and that they have hearts and are worthy of a home, you know, he's basically telling us, they're not monsters, right? They are children, they are your fellow creatures, just like you. But then we actually see the orcs, and they're totally monsters, right? And, you know, they're just out for blood, and they're, they're horrible, and they're disgusting, and they're terrifying. Um, they act just like monsters, right? So I, there's some kind of disconnect between Adar and reality. That's been clear from the very introduction of Adar's character, right? When he first informed us that he was planning to become a god, I began to question whether or not Adar was in touch with the same world around us that the rest of us are, right? Um, so he's delusional, but we're seeing through Adar's perspective the consequences. It's, it forces us to really think through what does it mean for orcs to be derived from elves. They're not dodging those questions as Tolkien always did and none of his works, none of his published works really engage, none of his stories, I should say, really engage um, with those implications. And they are, and I think that that's really interesting. So again, when Galadriel talks about slaughtering them, it's really uncomfortable, right? Again, in, in the books, somebody says they wanna kill all the orcs, that's not troubling. That's the right thing to do. Again, if you've got all these murder bots out there, you want to decommission them all, obviously, to keep everybody else safe, right? But now, in the context, in the context of Adar's words about his children, right, now all of a sudden, it's, it's simply vengeance, right? Her, her uh, angry words at the end, where she is threatening to slaughter all of his children in front of his eyes and then kill him last, right, is simply, she's just drinking the seawater. Right? She is attempting uh, to satisfy her thirst with salt water. She is going in the same vengeance direction that she was just a couple scenes earlier cautioning Halbrand not to do. Right? And it brings uh, the whole situation um, into a significantly greater moral complexity. It's a different moral situation than we have in The Lord of the Rings. And I think it's important that we kind of realize what they're thinking through and where they're asking us to go. They're asking us to follow Tolkien down a line of thought which Tolkien himself turned away from, right? But he never provided us an alternative. They've chosen one and they're following it. There's gonna be moral complexity that we're not used to seeing in this world. But that doesn't mean it's totally alien to the world. It just means that they are following through on one of Tolkien's ideas. And I think it's going to have some really interesting results. So the title of episode six is Udun. 
And Udun is a Sindarin word that basically translates to hell. And of course, that is relevant to this episode in several different ways. On the one hand, we have several characters who experience something like their own personal hell in this episode. On the simplest level, you have somebody like Ontamo, Isildur's kind of dorky friend, who clearly does not enjoy the battle experience very much, and I doubt he's going to very much enjoy what comes next, right? So we see him confronting something that he is not really okay with. At the same time, in much more seriously, um, uh, we have Arondir and Theo, who are having Bronwyn's lifeblood pouring over and through their, their fingers, right? Um, that clearly was a kind of personal hell that they were going through in this episode. And then, of course, we have Galadriel, who I think ends this episode uh, in something like her personal hell. Again, I think that's why we see her just standing there before the oncoming waves of ash and fire as they are sweeping down from the mountain, just standing there and letting it engulf her. It is like an outward um, manifestation of what has just been going on internally during her confrontation with Adar. However, um, there are some other things about Udun that I want to explain some of the background to because the, the, the show is playing with some things in a really, really clever way. Um, so first, the original meaning of Udun, where we see it originally, is it's actually the, 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 the first stronghold of Morgoth that he builds in the far north of the word. The Quenya word for this is Utumno, is its name in Quenya. Udun is its name in Sindarin. Now, this literally translates to hell, as I said, and there's a good reason for this. Um, originally, when Tolkien wrote the stories, um, his initial concept was actually that Morgoth's residence was literally hell, like the afterlife, hell, where bad elves went when they died, essentially. And then you had Paradise, which was Valinor, and then you had Purgatory, which was basically the halls of Mandos. Um, so that sort of simplistic, literal mapping of the afterlife onto the world was one of the initial conceptions that he had. He changed that conception very early on. He didn't actually tell any stories that took place within that conception. However, the name stuck. And so, it, though it becomes a little bit more figurative um, as the stories went on, still, the original residence of Morgoth was called Udun. It was called Hell. By the way, this is what Gandalf is referring to. You may remember in The Fellowship of the Ring, both in the book and in the Peter Jackson film, you may remember that when Gandalf is confronting the Balrog on the bridge of Khazad-dûm, he says, the dark fire will not avail you, flame of Udun. That's why he calls it Flame of Udun, because it is one of the, the, the flaming, fiery de you know, devil spirits um, who lived with Morgoth in Udun, in hell, up there in the north, in what in Quenya is called Utumno. Um, so that is the Udun in question. However, in The Lord of the Rings, there is another Udun. There is a second Udun. And if you look carefully at your map from The Lord of the Rings and look in, Mor in Mordor, Right? You will see that there is a little part of Mordor that is labeled Udun. There's the Black Gate up in the northwest corner, and inside the Black Gate is this valley. Um, and it's surrounded by two other little branches of mountains, and there's a little pass in between them called the Eisenmouth. And, and that valley between the Eisenmouth and the Black Gate is called 
Udun on the maps. I remember when I was a kid, I was very confused about this because that was the only Udun I knew. And so I was trying to figure out why Gandalf called the Balrog Flame of Udun. I'm like, is he from there? Why did the Balrog live there? When did that happen? I was very confused. Um, but it's not the original Udun. This is a new Udun, right? It's a region on the map of Mordor. So Udun, as the title of the episode, also recalls the creation of Mordor, the turning of this region, Tir Harad, which we've been you know, uh, interacting with throughout the show so far, and it is being turned into hell with the eruption of the volcano, the volcanic ash, which is going to spew over it and lay waste to the landscape, and of course, the clouds above, which are going to blot out the sun, as Adar has been promising ever since episode five, right? Um, so the turning of, of Tir Harad into Mordor, into Udun, into a kind of hell is the other focus of that name, right? Um, and the parallel between the new Udun and the old Udun is, I think, here particularly important. Let me pause for a second for a little side note. Um, I would like to think, when I look at the Mordor map, I would like to think that the valley where the water was held back that gets opened up and sluiced down and then sent into Mount Doom in order to create the uh, volcanic explosion there, um, I would like to think that that water was held in the Valley of Udun so that the Valley of Udun itself would be like the cause of the effect of creating the hell um, in Mordor. I think that would be really, really cool. I don't know that that geographically works, right? This would mean that the, the water would be flowing through the eyes and mouth, right? And I kind of love that idea. I don't think it works geographically with what we actually see in the maps, in the show and everything. I just wanted to mention that I think that that would be cool. I don't know exactly. There's a little confusion for me about geography uh, exactly in Mordor in the show. Um, so maybe, maybe that is. If not, it's a cool idea. In any case, I'm going to get back to the old Udun and the new Udun, right? Because in Adar's conversation with Galadriel, he recalls that northern fortress. Now, the northern fortress is given a different name, though never in the show, not in the dialogue of the show. And Adar's own words parallel the old Udun and the new Udun. I've been associating that fortress in the north that, they, that Galadriel discovers in episode one where she kills the, the, the ice troll. Um, I've been associating that with Utumno from the very beginning. And I think that we can see here shades of the old Udun and the new Udun, right? When Adar talks about that northern fortress where Sauron fled to, right, that old stronghold of, e of evil, which is at least like Utumno, like Udun, right, if it isn't literally it, um, there Sauron performs these experiments, right? And he takes the orcs and he twists, and twists them and tortures them uh, in order to try to accomplish this thing, that, to develop this weapon, this power that he's trying to build, right? Adar refers to the sacrifice of his children, right? That is a place that wasn't just a hell because it was full of orcs. It was the hell of the orcs themselves. It was hell to them, where they were tortured and where they were sacrificed, and from which Adar himself wants to deliver them. He wants to give them their new home, right, to create a new home. So you have, they've escaped from hell, and so they're going to go instead to paradise, right? Well, orc paradise, and there's the problem, right? There's where the conflict emerges, which is really interesting, 
because what is a paradise for orcs? What does that look like? Well, you have to blot out, the, it starts with blotting out the sun, right? Um, the new home is a different kind of hell. In order to make it a home for the orcs, it still has to become Udun. It still has to become hell. Um, it's a hell that is for the orcs instead of the hell of the orcs in the north, right? And yet, um, there's still this internal conflict here. When the orcs, the captive orcs, who are being held under that canopy, um, right before the volcano erupts, as they start to hear, hear the rumbling and the, the water is bursting up out of the, the holes in the tunnels, right, as it is coming through, the orcs know what's going on, right? They know what to expect. And they're all chanting, Udun, Udun, Udun. They are asking for the unleashing of hell, which is what they get when Orodruin blows, when Orodruin explodes, right? And so this question of in building a home for the orcs, you're creating a hell for everyone else. You are turning Tirharad into Udun, the new Udun, right? Um, but is the new Udun going to be different from the old Udun? Is this really a home and paradise for the orcs who are children of Iluvatar in their heart, as Adar says? Or is it not even going to work out that way, right? Um, how, how are we supposed to understand the orcs? How are things going to work out for the orcs? Um, how deluded is Adar in the end, right? These are some of the things that I think we're going to have to see as we move forward. But I loved the concept of hell, of Udun, um, sitting just in the center of this episode in the way that it does. Thanks for joining us on Rings and Realms. Well, as always, there's still a lot that we haven't talked about. I didn't get to talk about Halbrand and my ideas about what's going on with him and, and who, re, who he really is. Um, I haven't gotten to talk about Muriel uh, and her position with regard to all this stuff. And of course, we haven't said a thing about Waldreg uh, and uh, his crucial role in what we see happening. So if you would like to discuss more, we have several opportunities for you to do that. Um, if you want to jump on Reddit right away, uh, you can join the discussion there at LOTR underscore on underscore prime. That's Lord of the Rings on Prime Reddit. Um, you can join us there for some more discussion about this episode. Also, you can join me and Maggie live for Other Minds and Hands, which is our episode on Thursday afternoons at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time on the Signum University Twitch channel and YouTube channel. There we do a live discussion with uh, our attendees and stuff, so if you want to come and, have, and answer, get some questions answered, you can do that then, and we'll talk about some of these other things that we didn't get around to in this episode. But of course... Then soon, we're going to be at episode seven, uh, and we'll get to see more Durin and Elrond and learn some more about this mithril plot and, of course, get further development on the Harfoot story and see what resolution we get in the tension between the stranger and Nori. So lots coming up. And, of course, after episode seven, don't forget to join me and Maggie in our Twitter Spaces show on Friday afternoon at noon Eastern time. Follow me at TolkienProf on Twitter. Uh, and you can find our spaces there. So uh, that's it for this week. I'd better get going because I don't like the look of that mountain off in the background here. Uh, so I'd better get moving. See you next time. Bye.